This morning we're in Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 12. If you want to begin to find your way there, Matthew 7, 7 through 12. We only have a couple of sermons left in this Sermon on the Mount sermon series. So I pray you have felt it to be as devastating and uplifting as I have kind of devastating to my understandings of how well I was doing and just uplifting that God meets my inadequacies and my failure at that point, not asking me to be perfect, but providing the perfection of Christ in the places of my inadequacy. This morning, we're going to look at the issue of prayer and just know that when we come into this, uh, many of you have probably heard some of these verses. You've heard them uh, for a number of years and then you've heard them used in a number of different ways. And so uh, for some of us, it's going to come at it from a slightly different approach. And so there are some things that maybe you have understood about prayer. And so this morning, you're going to hear some things and, and say, well, that's, that's not what I've heard before. And how does that work? And so we want to make sure that we are asking good questions of the text, okay? That we're reading the text well. And that's something that each of us has to do every week. Anytime somebody speaks and they uh, give you an explanation of, of how this works out, you also are charged with, with reading and reading carefully and asking, is this wise or is this person just an old hack that's told me something that's ultimately false? And, and that's something that each of us as Christians are charged with each and every time we hear someone speak the word, okay? And I'm not saying that, uh, that I'd like many of you to come up to me at the end of the service and say you're a no-talent hack, although certainly some of you might. Uh, certainly the ones that didn't laugh at that. <laughs> there you go. Let me read 7 through 12, and then we will walk through. Jesus speaks, and he says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish, that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus begins with this kind of emblematic, this, this really well-known statement on prayer. Just kind of, you know, ask, seek, knock. And it seems to be that what he's saying is, if we'll do this, if we'll enter into this process, then God will give us those things that we're asking for, those things that we're seeking for, and he will open up the door that we're knocking on. Let's look at it. One of the things we recognize most readily is that what Jesus is describing here is not just a one-off request. The way this is structured, the way that we look at this, the way that we understand this and, and see how Jesus originally structured it, and Matthew recorded Jesus' language and structured it so that we would understand that one of the things he's talking about is persisting in asking persisting in asking. And so it's not just enough to go up and say, hey, uh, Zach, would, would you do this? And Zach, here's my request. And he thinks about it and he says, no. But it's more like this. Zach, would you do this? Zach says, no. Zach, would you do this? Would you consider this? Zach says, no, nah, I don't know. You're, you're, you're certainly continuing on this strain, aren't you? And I say, Zach, hold on a second. Would you do this? 
Perhaps it's the emphasis that I'm uh, not employing correctly that's the reason you're not doing it. And so we recognize that one of the things he's talking about is persisting in this behavior. Oftentimes, the way our prayer works, if we're not in an emergency, man, our spouse, us, our kids, our job, something is in jeopardy or in peril. It's like this addition, this infusion of strength and urgency to our prayer. And we stay and we continue to pray in this moment because we are so taken that this thing has to come to be, right? We're sick. Our spouse is sick. Our finances have completely crapped out. We have nothing left. Our health is gone. Our job is gone. Our confidence is shaken. And in that moment, we stay and we continually pray until the situation changes. This is the normal pattern of prayer for a Christian, not just for an emergency situation. The normal pattern of prayer for a Christian is persisting in prayer. We can constantly find ourselves over and over and over again praying to God. This is the pattern of prayer. It's not this thing we do for two or three minutes before we accidentally fall asleep at night. God, is thank you for my day and all the things that you've done to... Oh, man, it's a long day. That's not how we pray. It's not this morning prayer of, of waking up and finding ourselves competing against this clock where we say, I've got 30 minutes before I have to be in the shower because then I have to be dressed because then I have to eat breakfast because then I've got to get on the road and then I've got to sit in traffic. Prayer is this thing that we persist in. It should be the very manner of the way that we live our lives. It is this ebb and flow of our relationship with him where we consistently find ourselves communicating with God. He says, pray, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek. And so we see this idea that, that, that matched with this communication to God, this command from Jesus that we ask of God certain things is also paired this idea that we are to go and to seek it out. That, that met with this idea that we are asking him for things, we are moving in line with this. Our requests are also matched with our behavior. We are patterning our heart, the things we do, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the communication we have with others. We are actively seeking the things that we're asking for. And we're knocking. You see how he's describing this pattern that's not just kind of this laissez-faire attitude. He's not describing passivity on our part, but he's describing activity on our part. Now, the amazing thing about this is that the asking, the seeking, and the knocking is in no way our bringing these things to be, right? And so none of us are, or hopefully none of you are under the mistaken assumption that when we are doing these things, we are making them happen. Is if God's up there in heaven and he says, man, Zach just won't shut up. He just keeps asking. He just keeps seeking. He just keeps knocking. Go away. We're closed. The light's off. There is no more candy. Leave me alone. I guess he's not getting the notion. I guess I'll let him have it. We cannot force these things. This is why over and again in these, 
Matthew is recording these things in the passive, giving us the indication that it is God's movement that answers our prayer. It's God's movement that brings to be the things we are seeking. It's God's movement that opens the door that we desire to have open. But yet many of you this morning have prayed for things that you have not gotten. You have persisted in prayer. You have ardently sought after these things and you've knocked until your knuckles are bloodied. But you have not received it. And so someone's come up to you and hopefully they've been well-meaning and they've told you a couple of things. They've supposed that you have not had enough faith to bring these things to be. So they said, friend, the reason you don't have the things you ask for is simple. You don't have enough faith. And that can be incredibly wounding. Our spouse is sick, she dies. Our child is sick, they die. Our job's on the chopping block, we lose it. Late making our house payments, we lose our house. All the time, we are, there, there is no more room for faith in my life. I have no doubts that God will bring these things to bear. It's not a lack of earnestness. And so we convey that to them. We say, look, I, I don't think it's a lack of faith on my part. And so they turn and say, okay, well, there's nothing deficient over there. So let me come over to this other side and let me just say, sinner. <laughs> Maybe they don't say it like that, but it would be better if they did. And so they point in your life and they say, well, if there's no lack of faith in your life, then clearly that there is evidence of faith or an evidence of sin, and it could be that it's this special kind of sin that you don't even know is there. So then you begin to think, you're like, okay, and so I'm running through my motives, and I'm running through all these various things, and I don't get cats anymore, I light them on fire, so it can't be that. I gave that up for Lent. Never picked that back up. I don't steal anymore. I don't trip little old ladies anymore. I don't lie anymore. I don't think about lying anymore. I don't think about, think about, think about lying anymore. And I'm not engaged in all these various things. And so no, I, I, I just don't think it's the presence of sin that I'm not willing to deal with. I just don't think that's it. And so we evaluate, we ask other brothers and sisters come into our lives and they look at us and they say, no, it doesn't seem to be an absence of faith. No, it doesn't seem to be a presence of sin. And so what do we do with it in the midst of these? Well, we recognize that everything we ask for, we are not going to get. This is so hard for us. And I don't think you can understand this until you've seen a little kid ask for something that you know you can't give them. Dad, can you give my, my pocket knife? I just want to run out back and cut something really quick. No! Can I shoot the gun by myself in the house? Both of those things are wrong. But it would be fun. I like that. No! I have to recognize also that there are things that we ask for that are not bad things. They are good things. It is good that our spouse not die. It is good that our child live. It is good that we not lose our job. Those are good things. It is good that, that, that harm and danger not befall those we care about or those we don't. But we are not omniscient. We don't know the future. We don't know what our afternoon is going to bring. And it could be that God is allowing those things to move and happen in your life 
to keep you in this place of needing him. That's hard to hear. So we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with fear. And in that moment, God is moving and shaping our heart, allowing the crucible of life to keep us in this place where we are needful. And he knows that if he were to give us this thing that we ask for, we would stop needing him, stop pursuing him, because we had finally attained the thing we had set the highest value possible on. But still he calls us to persist. Still he calls us to stay. We don't receive not because of the absence of, or the, 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 the presence of sin or the absence of faith, but we don't receive because it is not what he has for us. So all the various things that we would run through and think of, of, of these things and why am I not getting them, it could be that there is sin. It could be that there's a lack of faith, but it also, and very likely in many instances in your life, will be simply because that is not what he has for you. So what do we do then? What do we do then with verses that, that on a plain reading of it simply says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find it. Matt, what do I do with what seems to be a promise? With what seems to be a clear communication that if I do this, God will do that over here. Well, one of the things that's helpful, and, and you'll see this if you attend these seminars on how to read the Bible and how to read it well, one of the most important things you can do, no matter where you're studying Scripture, is seek to establish the context. Because the context is, and so if we take a verse and we just kind of rip it from the context, and I say to you, ask and it will be given you, you're like, I'm taking that to the bank. I'm, I'm just taking that to the bank. I'm going up to the Lamborghini dealership, and I'm asking for this Lamborghini that, that, that they're now in the process of building self-healing cars. And so that sounds great to me. I've got some engine trouble with my own, and Toyota's not interested in that. And so what do we do with these verses? One of the things we have to seek to establish the context. And the context from which Matthew 7, 7, 12 comes, not just from the surrounding context of the verses, but it finds itself nestled amidst this Sermon on the Mount. And so when we begin to ask ourselves, what are the things that God has highly valued, starting in Matthew chapter 5 and running through all the way through chapter 7, what are the things he has valued? What are the things he has told us to seek? We find in that that there is really only one material possession due to us. And that is in the example that the Lord uses of the Lord's prayer. And it is give us this day our what? Our daily bread. The idea that just enough to make it through today on. Not enough for tomorrow, not enough for next week, but give us enough that we can make it through this day on. And that is the only thing within the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount that he tells us provisionally in terms of material needs. And so then we're going to ask the question, okay, then what things has he highly praised and, and, and lauded that we should then pray for? And what I think in terms of what is the application, what is the it that we will receive? What is the it that he tells us to pray for? What is the it we're to ask for? What is the it that we're to seek? And what is the it of that door that we're supposed to be knocking on? It is the totality of all those things described within the Sermon on the Mount. And so we find ourselves moving and asking for things that we cannot bring to bear in our own lives. Looking back at Matthew chapter five and verse three, he said, blessed 
or the poor in spirit. This is what he desires for us to pray for, and this is what he gladly brings to be flourishing in our hearts. This is what he says persistent. This is what he says, pray and don't stop praying for these things. But man, you sit here this morning and you have to say, this is too much. See, I really want the Christianity that's just much easier, that just kind of brings me into salvation and just takes care of me over the course of my life. And when bad things that are too much for me to handle come up, then I want to be able to offload those to the big guy and know that he'll take care of them. Christianity has nothing to do with smooth and easy and easy living. It is taking up the cross of Christ, suffering daily and seeking him eternally. The things we pray for and persist in seeking, that we would be poor in spirit, that, they would, that we would be those who mourn, that our own personal sin, when I take in and I apprise how wretched I am, how I speak to my wife and speak to my kids and the thoughts that are within inside me would break my heart. And I would mourn, that I would weep. I need to pray for that. He says, blessed are the meek, that, that anytime pride wells up in me, that I would pray against that and I would stay in that and I would seek to be humble. And I wouldn't seek to put myself in places where people would praise me, but they would praise him. And I consistently, constantly, over the course of my life, have to be found praying, seeking, and knocking for this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That the manner that I live my life will be so and will be changed and will be forced and directed towards seeking to bring righteousness in me everywhere. I want no part of my life that is cordoned off for righteousness. Oh, God, you don't understand it's deer season, and so you can't have righteousness right now. Oh, God, you don't understand this TV show's on. You can't have righteousness right now. That my life would be open, that it would be stripped, that it would be bare in every area, an inch, and every nook and cranny of my life would be filled with his righteousness. And instead of hungering to be satisfying in self, whatever that is, whatever brings satisfaction to self, that I would only ever be satisfied with his righteousness. And that I would crave it every single day. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How much mercy do I want to be seen delivered and brought on those I dislike? I want mercy for me. I break the law, I do something wrong, I want to find a way I can get out of it. I get pulled over for speeding, knowing I'm speeding. What do I want to say to the officer, but no asking him or her this, it makes them more inclined to write a ticket. What do I want? Is there any possible way I could get off with a warning? Learning college, don't ask that question. If you can conjure tears, do that. <laughs> it seems to be odd in a man, but somehow more socially acceptable in a woman. Channel that. And we want mercy for ourselves, but we don't want it to those who wrong us. So in this, we have to pray to God. We have to persist in the prayer and seeking and knocking. God, make me a person who is merciful. God, make me a person, uh, verse 8 of chapter 5, who is pure. God, make me a person who is a peacemaker. And then God, make me a person who is worthy to suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. Righteousness at a surface level is easy for us. 
Because we deem righteousness on a surface level that thing that other people recognize in us. And culturally, kind of what that looks like is you attend church enough that people recognize your presence. You attend church enough that people recognize your presence. And when you miss two or three weeks, they don't recognize your absence. And culturally, that's what we kind of say. We make this assumption that if somebody comes to church, they're involved with church or a civic enterprise, that they're, they're righteous. But the type of righteousness in Scripture sees us standing for God and willing to suffer for that righteousness. Willing to lose our jobs, willing to lose our family, willing to lose our good standing in community. We recognize this is not normal. This is not natural. This is not something I wake up in the morning and wake my wife up and be like, today's the day I get to suffer for righteousness. <laughs> Mainly because she's not a morning person. But also I don't sing in the mornings. But this is not kind of our normal pattern of being in life and, and, and flow of being a Christian. Why? Because we found a niche in Christianity that is socially acceptable, that is normal, and it is a pace that we can keep without God. We only want God's intervention in the extremes. We don't want his involvement in normative day-to-day -day life. If that is the pattern of Christianity you've set, then I would challenge you today and say, are you really a Christian? There's only one way to be a follower of Christ. That is to persist in pursuing the things that Jesus highly values. And his heart is that his people would willingly suffer for his righteousness, and for his name's sake. He tells us that our righteousness, in verse 20, has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, and then says, if it doesn't, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we recognize that there is some, some demand upon us to pursue righteousness. And he moves through and he says, this is what it looks like in anger. This is what it looks like in lust. And this is what it looks like in divorce and oaths. And, and, and this is what it looks like in retaliation. And, and this is why you need to love your enemies. And so he's been moving through and systematically just attacking all these various areas where we look and say, I've got this. I've got this locked up in spades and I'm doing just fine. So he moves through this whole thing and he gets to Matthew 5, 48. And he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And in a previous week when we discussed this, I said what he's talking about there isn't outward perfection, but he's talking about it in terms of completeness. That the outward manifestation of kind of how we display righteousness would find a happy counterpart internally within our hearts. And we recognize this is not something we can bring to bear. You cannot be perfect care who you are. I don't care how hard you've been working at it. I don't care how, care how long in this kind of record in your mind of how well you have done. You cannot be. And so the call on this is that God would fully transform our hearts, that our inward being would crave and desire righteousness, and we will not desire it in and of our own being. So we pray for it. We persist in prayer for this. He says, ask for it, seek it, persist in this, stay in this mode of praying for these things, and God will bring it to you. It's not enough to wake up in the morning and say, God, help me to be holy today. 
It's got to be the pattern of every moment of our lives is persisting and staying in this dedicated prayer and seeking of God. And if this is the manner and course of our life, and I would tell you that this has to be the manner and course of every Christian's life, not just the fanatics, not just the, the, the ones who get to stand in front of you and compel you to do this, but this has to be the manner and course of all of our lives. If you will do this, God will meet you there. He will bring to you meekness. He will bring to you humility. He will bring to you purity. God will break your heart for things formerly you accuse people of being silly and thinking to be what it looks like to pursue righteousness. If you persist, if you stay the course, we have to trust him. He tells us in verse 8 of chapter 7 that everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is this great deal that, that God tells us not only do we have to persist, but we have to trust that he will bring these things to bear. If you are earnestly seeking God in his righteousness, he will bring these things to bear in your life. And so the question then becomes, what of the non-believer because it says everyone who asks for these things receives. What about the person who doesn't believe in God? And what I would say simply to that is the non-believer is not praying for righteousness. Because to pray for righteousness is to have this understanding that only God can breed and create righteousness. So if they find themselves desiring and delighting in righteousness, in meekness, and in humility, it could be God stirring in their hearts. And so he's calling them to himself. And so their prayer in that vein is not selfish. God, help everybody to see me and what a meek and amazing person, a meek and amazing person I am. But it's God shaping and transforming and changing their desires and helping them to line up within his word and will instead of those things that we deem socially acceptable and normative. See, Musun, he gives us this example so he's told us if we ask for these things, they'll be given to us. He says, everyone who asks for these things gets these things. And then he goes through and he's going to give us a couple of examples that kind of hedge on the, the side of ridiculous. So imagine that Jesus was kind of in this room and he looks around at you and he says, say you have some family relationship and you don't have to have kids to understand this. But he says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread... So Jesse's my son, and he says, Dada, could I have some bread? And I say, yes, boy. <laughs> Come here, slugger. Come on. <clears throat> and so he comes over, and I'm just like, all right, what do we got around here? And I just like, whammo, and slam him upside the head with a rock. He's like, Dada, was that, a, was that bread? I'm like, that's bread, boy. And so he's asking this question. He says, which one of you would do this? Everybody says, we're not we're talking like all practical jokes inside. Jesus is like, yes, of course. He said, none of us would do this. Your son's hungry. He desires bread. And so you're not going to give him a stone. Jesus says, okay. What about if he asks for a fish? And, and in all honesty, I hate snakes. I think they're vile and people that like them just really don't make sense to me. And so Jesus says, what if somebody asks for a fish and, and, and they're prepping to receive this fish and you just throw a snake at them? Anybody in this room that would do that? And they all look around like, Whoa. It was only one time, and it was a joke. It was a joke. I told her it was a joke. So the answer is, of course, no. No one would do this. Your son is hungry. 
He's gotten bread. Your son is hungry. He's asking for a fish. And which one of you would give him something that could harm him? Could bring damage to him? Would make him not trust you? Jesus says, look, you answer affirmatively to this. And so let me ask you this question. If you then, who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So he takes this crowd and he says, look, of your own kind of, of your own admission, you say that you would move to give good gifts to your kids. And they're like, yes, we give the bread, we give the fish. So you look, you need to understand something in terms of how incredibly good God is, how incredibly great God is, you are evil. So if we have this line and we have the goodness of God on this side and we have kind of man's position on this side, we would say God is so incredibly good that he makes all of humanity look evil. So I don't think he's talking about in terms of your kind of original sin and being separated from God. I think he's talking about in terms of contrast. Much like Jesus said, if you want to follow God, then you have to love him and hate your mother and your father. He's not saying you actually have to hate them, but he's talking about in terms of contrast. God is so incredibly good. Imagine the most saintly, amazing, it's got to be a woman, woman you know. Men get crotchety when they get old. Women get sweet. Imagine this most amazing woman you know. Now suppose that she's evil. That is the greatness of our God's goodness. That as sweet sweet and amazing as she is, that to behold our God makes her to appear vile and evil. And the sweet, saintly woman that you know to bring good and welcoming gifts to you, They are vile and evil compared to the good gifts this God brings. And it's not just that he's this kind of high and removed you. We read that he is in heaven. And so it's this picture that God is above all things, that he looks, he beholds all things, and he has the power and ability to bring these things to be true and real in our lives. But this God who is all-powerful has the ability to do these things. He's also described in this passage, in the song we sang earlier, as our Father. So this is the most amazing thing that you could ever imagine. To the 10th power, and so much higher than that. And he is our Father. We approach God with the intimacy of familial relationship. He is our all-powerful Father. And it is this God whom, when we ask him, brings good gifts to bear in our lives. Let me just confess, and many of you know this, I don't know all things. Many of you don't know that. That's even better. <laughs> Let's strike that from the record. I know all things. Moving on. Man, I'm, I'm frequently wrong. Um, my kids would tell you that my wife would confirm that she can do that after the service, but I'm frequently wrong, but I'm, I'm always seeking to do the right thing. But because I don't know everything, there are occasions where I'm going to do the wrong thing because I'm fallen. There's times where I'm going to do the selfish thing, but by and large, I want to do right by my kids. I want them to grow up and not be psychopaths. I want them to grow up and be well-adjusted. I want them to grow up and to think of me and say, this is the type of godly dad and husband I want to be when I get older. And so I try and only bring good things into their lives. And I try and only give them things that are going to better them. And sometimes that's adversity. They ask for things, and I know they don't need them. Mm. 
And I know if I gave it to them, it could ruin them. I have a limited window into understanding how their little psyche works. I have a limited window in understanding kind of best guess of how things are going to pan out if I introduce the wrong thing at the wrong time to them. God is limited in no way. He is limited in no way. Not in capacity, not in his, his desire to bring goodness to you. He is limited. He is deficient in no way. So know this. When you ask for something and do not receive it, it could be that it's his goodness keeping you from experiencing something other than him. The things we ask for can never be more important to us than the God who gives them to us. So he gets into verse 12, and we begin to see this kind of fleshed out, this idea fleshed out in terms of how it happens horizontally. Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, for many years before Jesus ever spoke these words, this statement existed, but in a negative form. And so it was, in essence, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to yourself. And what this requires of me is passivity. What this requires of me is that I quite simply, I just don't have relationships and I don't engage with other people. And so I, if, I, if there's something bad I don't want to happen to myself, I just don't do that to others. So Jesus turns it and he says, instead, we need to be actively engaged in moving the lives of all those around us in the goodness we want to be manifest and displayed and evident in our lives. We need to seek to be that and establish that in the lives of those around us. Now, why is this difficult? This is difficult because not everyone is as perfect as we are, right? Not everybody's as good as we are. Not everybody's as affable or likable as we are. There are people out there that smack when they chew their food. There are people out there that obsessively use their blinker and people that don't use their blinker. There are people who drive very slowly in the left-hand lane of traffic. We recognize those people Let's just not talk about them. It makes me so angry. <laughs> but there are people who don't live life the way that we do. There are people who don't have the same opinions and views on television and politics and gun rights and all various manners of things we might seek to disagree with. And we have to do good to them. We have to be invested in their lives. We have to seek to establish God's rule and his reign in their lives. And they're not going to diminish in their annoying capacity. They're not going to be less frustrating. And that's going to be hard on us. And this is why he said in the beginning, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and he'll open the door. We have to be dependent upon God between our own relationship with him and be dependent upon God and persisting in prayer, especially when it comes to our relationships with those around us. We need to ask, we need to seek, and we need to knock. Let me pray for us.
God, we come to you this morning recognizing that some of us have just been harboring disappointment that you've not given us those things that we've asked for. We've been frustrated with you, been disappointed with you. So God, I pray this morning that the disappointment would give its way to joy, that we might all come to recognize that you are the giver of good gifts. That what we suppose is a lack of care and involvement in our lives was really a, a display of deep care and providence. So God, I pray this morning that the Christians in this room would entrust themselves more to you, that we would give ourselves corporately and individually to the praying for these things that we cannot bring to bear and display on our own. And Father, I pray for the lost person in this room that doesn't know Jesus, that has not believed that Jesus came that he lived a sinless life, that he died upon a cross to atone, to pay for my sins, those ways I have failed you, those ways that I have violated your character, and that Jesus rose again, overcoming sin and death, paying the penalty of sin and death for me, for them. God, the prayer they pray would be the prayer that you would gladly answer, a prayer for salvation. God, would you make us needy, Would you keep us humble? Would you lead us to consistently and constantly pray for those things that you delight in giving to us? And we submit these things and we entrust these things in the powerful name of Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.